2 Peter 3, 1-9, hear the word of the Lord. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, Where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Let's pray. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. In 1953, the debut of Samuel Beckett's play, Waiting for Godot, uh, it appeared and it caused quite a stir. It was a, a play that in the last century was recognized as a very important play, Waiting for Godot. And uh, it's a very simple sort of structure. There's a tree, and there are two men, and they're talking, and they're waiting. And they wait, and they talk, and they're waiting for Godot, and he doesn't come. And then eventually a boy comes and says, Godot is not coming uh, today, he'll come tomorrow. And then that scene ends. And then there's the second scene. And they're waiting by the tree again, and they're talking, And then the boy comes back and says, Godot is not coming. And he denies that he had talked to the men ever before and told them yesterday that he was coming that day. And then the boy leaves and the men uh, talk about committing suicide, but they don't have a rope. And so they talk about going to get a rope, but they don't go anywhere. And the curtain falls. The end. That's the play. Now, there are a couple other characters that show up. But, but that's how the play goes. And of course, as you can imagine, there are all sorts of speculations about the meaning of this play. And a number of people point out that in English, G-O-D-O-T has the first words of God, and so they interpret it as God is not showing up, so maybe we should just commit suicide. Although Samuel Beckett denied that interpretation. He said, if I meant God, I would have said God. And he says, I wrote it in French anyway, so that play on words doesn't work in French. But however however that might be, whatever might be the interpretation of that theater, part of what was called the theater of the absurd, um, however that interpretation might be, we find the false teachers. And we've met these false teachers throughout this book. That's the background of this letter that Peter wrote. We find these false teachers playing a role similar to the role of the the boy in waiting for Godot. Uh, He shows up and says, Godot's not coming. And that's kind of what the false teachers did in the churches. 
they showed up and they said, and here there was no, no doubt about whom they were referring to, they showed up and were teaching Christians, God is not coming. God is not coming. They were denying the coming of God, the coming of Jesus, the coming of the Lord. And that was convenient for them because they were living lives as if God were never going to come, and particularly never going to come in judgment. And that was their message. You can live however you want because God is not going to show up. Now, in chapter 2, we heard the the very hard denunciation, a condemnation of these false teachers. But now, Peter turns away from denunciation to interact with what they were saying, the content of their false message. And that's what we get today. And Peter picks this up, and we see a transition here in chapter 3, and he reminds them, he kind of picks up where he was and reminds them of what he's doing. And he says, this is the second letter that I'm writing to you. Now, what was the first letter? Well, the best candidate, although some scholars have other possibilities, the best candidate for the first letter is what we call First Peter. That would be the, the most obvious thing in terms of what we have in Scripture and what we have in terms of, of extant writing uh, related to Peter. Now, what he says is, in both of these letters, I'm trying to remind you, I'm not so much giving you new information, I'm trying to remind you. Verse 3, this is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. And of what was he reminding them specifically? Verse 2, he was reminding them specifically of the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your Apostles. Now, um, he was reminding them of predictions by the prophets and the apostles. And it's interesting here that this is the second time that Peter has put together the words of the prophets and the words of the apostles. If you go back and look at chapter 1, verses 16 to 21, there he talks about the eyewitness testimony of the apostles and the confirmed testimony of the prophets. And if we look at what he says here, it's fascinating because he says, he says the, the, the predictions of the prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior, and they smooth, smooth this out in English, but it says the commandment of the Lord and Savior of your apostles. And it says here, through your apostles, which is fine, but the idea is that he's saying the commandment of the Lord and Savior, that is... Of your apostles. In other words, what your apostles gave to you is the, the teaching of the Lord and Savior. So the apostles' teaching is not something else other than the teaching of the Lord and Savior. The teaching of the apostles is the teaching of Christ. And now notice what he's doing here. And by the way, he says your apostles. This is not denying that he's an apostle. But it's saying your apostles, the one that evangelized you. So apparently Peter had not evangelized them, but some other apostles had. Apparently Paul, we'll see him later in this chapter, apparently Paul was one of their apostles who had evangelized them. But notice what he's doing here. He's exalting the word of the apostles 
to the word of Jesus. It is the word of Jesus. And he is putting the word of Jesus, the word of the apostles, on par with the recognized Old Testament scriptures. Now this is fascinating. Because what it shows is, from the very earliest days of Christianity, there was a concept of what we call the New Testament. Now for them, scripture was the Old Testament. But we see from the very earliest days... The teachings of the apostles were recognized as the teaching of Christ, which was recognized as on par with the scriptures of the Old Testament. Now that's important because some people conceive of the the New Testament as a, a later invention of the church, but we see, on the contrary, the teaching was received from the beginning as authoritative and when it was written down as scriptural teaching. Now, the specific prediction of the prophets and the apostles of which he wanted to remind them was that scoffing scoffers would come in the last days. The the prophets prophesied about this. The apostles warned about this. And this is a Hebrew way of speaking. Uh, There would be scoffers following, uh, coming in there scoffing. They were scoffing scoffers. So what do scoffers do? They scoff, exactly. And these scoffers were scoffing. And they would come when? They would come in the last days. So what's Peter indicating here? That the last days had already arrived. The last They were in the last days because these scoffing scoffers had already showed up. And what was their, what was their scoffing? At what were they scoffing? Well, they were scoffing at the idea of the Lord's Coming, the Lord's coming. Verse 3, knowing that first of all, this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. So they were saying, basically, this is the form of their argument. The Lord is not coming And the reason they were saying the Lord was not coming is because He never has in the past. He hasn't come. So why would we expect the future to be any different than the past? So their argument was, things have continued just the same. Things have not changed. The Lord has not intervened. The Lord has not come. So why would you expect Him to come now? So that was one of their their, uh, objections. That was their, their logic. And it seemed like, and this is something with which the early Christians had to wrestle, it seemed like Jesus was not fulfilling some of the words that he said. That he would be coming back, and some of them expected him to be coming back very soon, and some decades had passed. And so these scoffers were saying, where, where is this coming? Where is this promise of his coming? We, we've heard about this promise, but, but where is he? Decades have passed by now. And he hasn't shown up. And so we can conclude that the future will be the same as the past. And he's not coming. And then that was convenient for them. Because then they could live however they want. Because God would never come to judge them. Now, some interpreters... um, Oh, by the way, they argued. They argued very specifically. They said things have actually been stable since the beginning. They said, since the fathers fell asleep, which is probably the Old Testament patriarchs, since the fathers fell asleep, 
All things have continued, not only since the fathers, since the beginning of creation. Since creation, the, the universe has been stable. Nothing has really happened. Nothing has really changed. So why do you think something's going to change now? Now, um, some interpreters have compared the viewpoint of the false teachers here to some ancient philosophies. Uh, for example, Epicureanism, an ancient philosophy that one of its tenets was that the universe is stable. It just keeps going on. It's eternal. Nothing ever changes. It just keeps going on. We also, as modern people, might see some similarities, and some people have drawn these, these comparisons between what we could call naturalism or materialism, which says the only thing that exists uh, is that which is material. And material is just governed by natural laws. There's no divine intervention. It just keeps going on because that's what matter does. Now, we could also compare them, perhaps more accurately, to modern deism. Because in deism, there's no denial of God. There's an affirmation of God, but he just doesn't get involved in things. He, he winds up the clock and lets the clock tick away. But he doesn't intervene. He doesn't. He sets up the, the natural laws and then he just kind of minds his own business and lets the universe go on. So they might have been something like that. But whatever these similarities may be, their basic argument was God has not intervened, so he will not intervene. Now, the rest of this section is an answer to these, these, uh, this objection. And there are five of them. There are five of them in verses 5 to 9. So look, let's look at these five answers. And the first one is this. The first one is, he says they're deliberately overlooking some things. Deliberately. They're deliberately overlooking this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. So what they're overlooking, first objection, they're overlooking at how the, the universe got here in the first place. It was formed... By water. By water. And now we modern people recognize that water is necessary for life. But it wasn't just an H2O process. It was created through water, by water. And if you go back to Genesis, you'll see how the, the world was made by separating chaotic waters. and uh, But not just by water. Not some natural process. But if you go back to Genesis, it was by God's speaking, by God's will, by God's word. So uh, you're talking about God not intervening. And, and Peter says, excuse me, how did all this get here in the first place if God doesn't intervene? He made it not just by some natural process. He made it by his word, by his will. That's, object, that's uh, answer number one to the objection. Answer number two in verse six. And by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. This, this, these, it says by means of these, probably these are the same means by which he created the world. That is water and word. Water and word. So by water and word, he intervened again. Regenesis. Read Genesis 6 through 9. He intervened again by water and his word. And what did he do? He intervened in judgment. He deluged the world. And it says, the world at that time perished. Now, it may mean the world of humans, or he may be indicating that, that the, the 
there was something like an uncreation going on. That is to say, the, the earth was formed by separating waters, and then in the flood, the waters, the water, chaotic waters, came back together again. So as if he was undoing creation, but we certainly know that the, the human world at that time perished. So that's, that's the second answer to these, these false teachers, these scoffers in their scoffing. The flood also emphasizes that God may delay judgment. He may delay judgment, but judgment will certainly come. He will come to judge eventually. So the third answer, verse 7, God actively sustains the heavens and the earth even now. Verse 7, you say God's not involved. But, verse 7, but by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist, that is, after the deluge, so there's the, the heavens and earth before the flood, uh, there's the heavens and earth after the flood, those, who, uh, those that exist now are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But notice at the very beginning, what's the means? By the same word. So, creation came into being by the Word of God. The flood was brought by the Word of God. The heavens and the earth that exist now are sustained by the Word of God. God was active in creation. God was active in bringing judgment. God is active even now, sustaining all that we have and all that we see. So he's saying, even though it may look... Oh, there's a switch here, isn't there? No longer is the the physical means water... But now it's fire. So, word and water, word and water, word and fire. But the word is constant in all three of these interventions. And he's saying, even though it might look to some like God is not doing anything, in fact, God is causing everything we have and see to continue to exist. Actively, He is involved. Now, there's some irony here. And the irony is this, the only reason that the scoffers are around to say that God is not doing anything is because He's doing very much. You see that? They're living in God's universe, and it's sustained by God, and they're saying, God is not doing anything. And the only reason they can say that is because God is giving them breath to be able to say that. He's giving them continued existence. There's a world in which they can live and they can say that. So they're standing in God's universe that He is sustaining and saying God is not doing anything. That's the third argument. The fourth is this. And this, this fourth one addresses the question of the delay. Why is He taking so long? Verse 8. But do not overlook this one fact. And here there's a, there's a play. He says, they, the false teachers, deliberately overlook. And then he addresses his audience and says, but you do not overlook. Don't overlook this fact. That God is not on the same time schedule as you are. Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. And here he's quoting or paraphrasing from Psalm 90, verse 4. That a thousand years in your sight are are like yesterday, like a day that passes. God is not constrained by time like we are. So for us, is a thousand years, are a thousand years a long time? Absolutely. Why? Because our years are, are, are a small percentage of those thousand years. 
for God are a thousand years a long time? No. They're like nothing. They're like a day that passes. So God is not on the same time scale as we are. And that leads into the fifth uh, the fifth answer to this, this objection, and that is this. The Lord is not slow. He's patient. The Lord is not slow, but He's patient. Verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise. You remember they said, where is the promise of His coming? And He says, He's not slow to fulfill His promise, the promise of His coming, and then kind of, maybe sarcastically, as some count slowness. Those who don't know how to count well, as some count slowness. But what? Is patient towards you. He's patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And so what some are scoffing at is actually an opportunity. What some are calling a delay or a mistake or a lack of intervention is actually God's goodness, His patience towards you. And notice this. And I have to say that I never noticed this until this past week. I've always read this verse, and I think not completely incorrectly, because we'll get to this in the next section. I've always read this verse as giving an opportunity for those outside the church to come into salvation through faith in Jesus. And that's true. The patience of the Lord does extend to them. And this is an opportunity for, for those who have not yet come to faith in Christ to come to faith in Christ and believe on Him who lived and died and rose from the den, dead for our salvation. So it is an opportunity, and we will see that very clearly in the next section. But notice to whom He addresses this, this teaching here. He says He's patient towards whom? He's patient towards you, He says to his readers, to you, Christians, to you who name the name of Christ. He is giving you an opportunity. And so do not despise this. Do not be taken away by the false teaching of these these false teachers, these scoffers. He's giving an opportunity to you, beloved, to repent, to turn to Him, and not to perish. Now, what's this question of perishing? Well... The question of perishing is that there were some who professed to be Christians, these false teachers, they professed to be Christian teachers, and we learned in chapter 2 that they're going to perish unless they repent, but Peter wasn't holding out a lot of hope for that. But he was holding out hope for the rest of us. He was holding out hope that that we, taking advantage of this opportunity that that God has given us, that we're alive today, that He has not come back yet. This is patience towards us, He says, beloved. It gives us another opportunity to turn from our sins and to turn back to God in faith and repentance. Now, um, we're going to talk about reaching others with the Gospel, and that comes out, as I said, in the next section. And that's, that's a very important part of the fact that Christ is coming again and, and the connection between reaching others and, and His return. and those, The timing of those things are related to each other, as we will see. But the first step, the, first, the, the prerequisite for reaching others with the Gospel is that we Christians live as Christians. And that's what he emphasizes here. 
that the first step in reaching others is to live out our faith ourselves by turning constantly to God from sin to Him in newness of faith and repentance. We have been praying, as many have been, during this pandemic that just keeps dragging on and on. Uh, We've been praying for revival. And we know that something is happening in this world. None of us have the the wisdom or the, the foresight to know what it is and what this will look like and what the church will look like after this is all over. There's a stirring of of the nations now, and there's a stirring of the church. And so many of us have been praying, Lord, send revival. Send revival coming out of this. And that's a wonderful thing to pray, but usually what we mean by that is the second part of revival. And that is when people come into the church in in throves and in, in, in multitudes. And that's what we long for. But we're overlooking the first part of revival. And the first part of revival starts in the church itself. That's where revival begins. It's when Christians take their own faith seriously. It's when Christians live out their own faith in integrity, constantly turning from sin to Christ, renouncing sin, receiving God's grace and forgiveness over and over again, and walking by His the power of His Spirit in the integrity of of faith. And so, and so as we pray for revival in accordance with with what this text says and in accordance with what we see during revival times in church history, we're first praying for ourselves. And there's a recipe for revival that I've heard about. And it says take a piece of chalk and draw a circle on the ground and stand in that circle and pray to God that revival would start breaking out within that circle first. And go out from there. And so in keeping with this, this opportunity that the Lord is giving us, this patience with His church, with His beloved people, we join in praying as many have prayed over the centuries before us. Lord, send revival and start with me. Let's pray. Our God, we thank You for Your patience. We thank You that You're giving us another opportunity to turn to You. And we pray, O God, not first for the nations, although we long for the nations to come, not first for our, our brothers and sisters out there whose lives we don't approve, but we pray for ourselves. And we pray, O God, that You would, in Your patience, that You would send revival and that You would send it to us first. God, that You would grant us repentance that leads to life, that we would not be taken astray by false teaching, that we would not be taken astray by our own sin, but that we, affirming that You are coming again, that we would constantly be living that life of repentance, turning from sin to You, from sin to You, that we might be forgiven, that we might be renewed, and that we by Your Spirit might walk in newness of life. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.